Hi, everybody. I'm Mark, and the D stands for Deconstruction, Disabuse, Demolish, Do Bad Things to Your Expectations. A bit of a mouthful. A bit wordy. Verbose, I mean. It's, uh, it's definitely me, but also not terribly aesthetically pleasing, so definitely me. That introduction was sent in by Robert Altman. Posthumously. Here, have a movie trailer, which pretty much ruins the whole thing. Spoilers apply, but if you didn't watch the movie, it's okay with me. Please note that it is actually not okay with me. That's a reference. Please watch The Long Goodbye prior to continuing this podcast for a better experience. Hey! Hey, Mrs. Wade! Jenkins. Come on, let's go inside, Marlo. We want to talk to you. Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it happens every day. Right profile. Sit down. Sit down. What the hell are you doing here? That's right. I'm getting ready to sing Swan. When some passerby invites your eye to come her way. There's gonna be a lot of people looking for me as a result of my lovely wife. If it was a murderer, he murdered his wife. That's a lie. I know he didn't kill and, her. He and, couldn't I'll tell you something else. It's a minor crime, a crime, a misdemeanor to kill your wife. The major crime is he stole my money. Your friend stole my money, and the penalty for that is capital punishment. Even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go. I like your face, too. Could you find my husband for me, please, Mr. Marler? You let the moment fly. I'm a man cannot stand confinement. Who the hell are you? Well, I'm this here private investigator who was sent here this afternoon to uh, find you. Did you come here to see me or my wife? It's not his business. Write the check, Roger. What check? Write the check, Roger. Whoa. Lady, you turn your head. You know you said the long goodbye. Never learn. You're a born loser. What do you think, Mabel? Ow! If you have any trouble, I'll back you up. I have fresh evidence now for you to reopen the Terry Lennox case. You ever think about suicide, Marlboro? Me? I don't believe in it. Don't you try to be nice to me now. I'm leaving and it's goodbye. I ain't running after you in the rain when you're catching a plane. No more. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'm through, I'm through this time. I think that this could be a long one. I don't want it to be, but it definitely could. There's a lot in this movie, very specifically for the film studies majors, for the English majors looking to fuck stuff up, for the dreamers, for the music makers. This one's going to start off different. The first thing, when looking around about this movie to try to figure out what the fuck you might have just watched is that Robert Altman has been quoted as saying that Marlowe is a man out of time. He is Rip Van Marlowe, and he fell asleep in the 40s and woke up in the 70s. On the surface, that seems like a big deal and uh, perhaps some supreme thesis about the whole movie. You might be some wide-eyed undergrad really looking into biting into a juicy piece of film 
you might be right. This is that film. The difference or warning here is that this one might be bad for you in the long term. Let's rewind a little bit before we get into this and I'll summarize it. I'll, I'll try to summarize it how I feel like it happened. Philip Marlowe, yes, with one L and an E at the end, as the movie calls out in a particular way, has absolutely fucking zero going on in his life. The book does a, a better... Wait, fuck. God damn it. Yes. Okay. There, there is a book. Yes. So let's start there. Let's start with Chandler. Not Chandler Bing. Definitely not Mrs. Chandler Bong. Raymond Chandler. Ray Cheesy. Oh, Ray Ray Fishing Chandlers. Big Ray Chitown. Anyway, dude was an oil company exec. And in 2021, that's, um, that's definitely some type of list to be on. In the 30s, though, real different. That Texas tea that isn't purple. Dude had money, but he lost his job during the Great Depression, or what I call my early 20s. Accounts differ here, and there's definitely a very demure accounting of it and a seemingly more honest accounting of it. Anyway, he's fallen low and has a dark night of the soul, I'm, I'm sure, and starts popping off in pulps, specifically Black Mask, which is also Hammett's stomping grounds. He taught himself to write by breaking down other writers of the genre, so he's he's basically latching on to the the catchiest things. Good metaphors and clever titles being among them. And that would be helpful if you listened to the previous episode on the Maltese Falcon. Anyway, he's really making these these gimmicks go, right? To cover up some arguably disjointed mystery plots. After writing short stories, he got into novels. And sometimes those were just smashed together short stories, resulting in his first novel, The Big Sleep, being released in 1939. There was plenty that came afterwards. The Long Goodbye was the sixth Philip Marlowe novel over the span of something like 12 years. Chandler had been writing for longer than that and was actually a, a poet prior to coming to America and being an accountant. His work was made or broken by how much he could get you to feel in a scene, how real it could be. The, the, the hyper-specificity that causes the imagination to recall a memory instead of just making something up. He did it well, but he also, going so hard in the paint on the main character soliloquies that end up on our minds when we think private detective, started the mechanism that would really turn this genre around 180 degrees in a bad way. Chandler was so into that that he basically said at one point, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, a good plot is one that has good scenes. That's it. That was that, That's the tweet. Think of him a little bit as a Michael Bay or a Zack Snyder of literature. To crib a phrase from William Martin Joel, Chandler didn't start the fire, per se, but he sure as shit threw some gasoline on it. Marlowe was an interesting character. You could say that he was like Chandler in many ways. Marlowe is a bit of a misfit, an introvert, and a snob. The movies, however, they, they do not play him that way. He would be such an asshole. The movies play him how people want to see him, not some herb whining about everything perceived to be beneath him and playing chess against himself, but more of a cool badass. 
Bogart helped a lot there in his turn as Marlowe in the movie The Big Sleep. But Chandler was that herb a bit. He grew up in England and he wanted to be a literary critic. It seemed that he uh it seemed that he had a fully formed concept of what a person's optimal life was like, and I think he felt disgusted with Hollywood in general. At one point in the book, The Long Goodbye, he has uh, and again, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but I believe it's Marlowe who says that he, he calls the telephone a fetish. What kind of Luddite garbage is that? He has various characters go on rants that feel like ultimately pointless self-inserts. There's a collection of correspondence that Chandler wrote, and I have seen it described as bitchy. And based on having re recently read The Long Goodbye, I believe it. Having that perspective being the fruits of one's rumination on the nature of humanity gives a lot of juice to stories based on, on vileness and, and cruelty. He was rigid in principles, and Marlowe, too, is somewhat boring in that way. The movie is much more fluid than that. This source material and director pairing was unusual, to say the least. Robert Altman if not quite counterculture, was at least counter-establishment. I've only seen two of his movies, The Long Goodbye and MASH. I, I, actually, I've seen three. I've seen Gosford Park, and I liked it. But it doesn't feel remotely like a Robert Altman movie, and that can just be due to the release date, to, due to when it came out. But Monty Hellman's two-lane blacktop and, to a lesser extent, George Lucas's American Graffiti also share the element of extreme naturalism and improvisation with Altman's The Long Goodbye. But in my, my stupid mid-30s brain, he really ends up lumped in with other filmmakers of the 70s like Frankenheimer, Friedkin, and Lumet. I know that that's a wide range of filmmakers, but... The 70s just had this different energy where even motivated paranoia thrillers like Three Days of the Condor feel a bit plodding and washed out by today's hyper-realistic standards. Maybe we're on a weird speed trip from the venom that society is using to placate and then consume us. Who knows? Feels like an episode of Doctor Who, I guess. But maybe it's true. Maybe I'm dumb. Maybe both. But Altman ran with a more arthouse-leaning crowd akin to the experimental and improvisational nature of Tulane Blacktop. I did an episode on, on Tulane back in May of 2020, uh, Season 2, Episode 11. This movie isn't that raw, but on the continuum, it is not terribly far away. Altman worked like this in M.A.S.H. as well. Elliot Gould famously portrayed Trapper John in the 1970 film, and it is also famously very improvised. Having seen the show MASH somewhat often when I was younger, I was eager to see the movie. I did eventually do that at some point in my 20s, and I found it to be a collection of beautiful, funny, cruel, and dark scenes from the Korean War era, and more specifically, for the Vietnam War era. I guess you could say that, in a way, The Long Goodbye is the MASH of detective movies. Is that what I'm saying? Isn't this the whole point? Me saying something? Uh, you may ask the same of the movie upon viewing it. And you'll find as this continues that I think that it says a whole hell of a lot. Okay. My summary of the plot is as follows. T 
Terry Lennox, the rich friend of rumpled and vintage private detective Philip Marlowe, shows up at Marlowe's house at 3 a.m. with cuts on his face and asks Marlowe to take him over the border to Mexico. Marlowe agrees, and they do that. Marlowe comes back and the cops show up because it turns out it wasn't just a fight with his wife. Terry Lennox's wife is very dead, and he's definitely the main suspect. Marlowe, incredulous, clams up and spends three days in the clink for his loyalty. They cut him loose, and Marlowe learns it is because Lennox punched his own ticket in a small town in Mexico. It's all dead ends there, but Marlowe has received a message from an Eileen Wade, whose rich Hemingway-like husband Roger has been missing for a week. Marlowe does the bare minimum amount of sleuthing and finds Roger, who medium doesn't want to be found because he's an absolute rager of an alcoholic. Somewhere in here, there's a gangster named Marty Augustine who's clearly from the USA Network because characters welcome. And there's 350 grand of his 1970s money that went missing with Lennox. Considerable sum. Marlowe is steady, not sleuthing, but perhaps a little in love with the Wade family, at least interested in them. Marlowe goes to Mexico and talks to some people in a small town. Roger Wade walks into the ocean. Marty Augustine makes Arnold Schwarzenegger undress. The missing money mysteriously shows up while Marty has Marlowe. Eileen is seen leaving Marty's place. Marlowe chases her on foot and gets hit by a car. Marlowe goes back to Mexico and uses the very distinctive money that Lennox had sent to Marlowe to bribe the people he talked to last time into telling the truth. He finds Lennox alive and well. He talks to Lennox for a minute, and then he shoots him. He wanders off playing a tiny harmonica, and Eileen Wade sees him. The end. This is drastically simplified from the novel, and Lee Brackett, co-writer for the Bogart starring Big Sleep in 1946, also penned this screenplay. She and Faulkner in 1946 had similarly reduced the crap out of the Big Sleep because, kind of as previously stated, good plots in Chandler's mind are, are excuses for good scenes or good scenes are excuses for a good plot or whatever. He just thinks it's scenes. He thinks in terms of scenes, not arcs. And uh, both novels just, they had too many for a movie. So they did a Rick Rubin on it. This is the license to ill of detective movie adaptations. Altman reportedly cut several scenes last minute as well. Things moved around a lot during shooting, a lot of space for the characters to explore. Goulds wrote his character's own catchphrase, It's okay with me. Sterling Hayden was allegedly extremely drunk and high during his scenes, so they didn't really have much of a choice but to let him roll. Mark Rydell, who just got asked to play Marty Augustine one day out of the blue, he just rewrote his whole character. The whole thing. Made him a psychopath. Altman was like, great. The, the, the plot almost doesn't matter. The mystery kind of plays a background role, maybe, to what to what happens actually on the screen. The fact that the connective scenes were cut is ultimately a plus, a win, a benefit. I don't think that I'm the sharpest movie watcher, and subsequent rewatches are actually usually less productive for me, but enough of the story is there. You know, I, I just finished reading the novel, and I can tell you that uh, Ray Chandler doesn't take his 12 notes on the mystery story too seriously. 
The plot isn't simple at all and not terribly well motivated, but I, I, I think I can explain it pretty simply. It's a reverse The Great Gatsby. Like, I cracked the code. I got it. I figured it out. It's a reverse The Great Gatsby. The gimlet is the green light. Bracket did the world a favor by cutting out a lot of that. And uh, the plot for the movie ultimately feels more motivated to me. The screenplay has, um, and, and this is just a guesstimation, probably 10 less named characters. That gives the movie a bit more room to breathe. So let's air out the plot a little bit more. So Lennox kills his wife. He was having an affair with Eileen Wade, played by Nina Van Pallant. Roger Wade had dropped dime to Mrs. Lennox, a lady not appearing in this film, and then disappeared to his weird cult clinic rehab place, possibly on the behest of Eileen or out of shame and not wanting to see her, but kind of sets up an alibi thing or a, a suspicion thing. Lennox goes to see Marlowe with Marty Augustine's 350000 to disappear to Mexico. He goes, bribes the people, and fakes his suicide. It's all good. At this point, Marlo's out of jail. Eileen hasn't seen Roger, so she calls up Marlo, who she knows is a loyal friend, since all the papers, all, they ran the story about him being clammed up in the cooler. He finds Roger. Roger is sketch as fuck. Marty finds Marlo. Marty thinks Marlo has the money, so he keeps tabs on him. Marlo finds out that Marty knows the Wades. It is completely unclear exactly who owed who money and there's and and it and this is likely because sterling hayden fucked up his lines but it's also immaterial marty talks to eileen specifically though eileen and marlo have an intimate dinner and i mean that with their their clothes on they just have dinner but it's like dinner with a potential capital d coming up at some point if things keep going how they're going you know he's 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 nicer but he's not too nice honorable i guess would be the way to put it but he also, he's also talking about business. Roger Wade walks into the ocean. So now Roger's out of the picture, and we have to wonder if Eileen's design was to kind of push him this way by uh, fraternizing with Marlo, one might think, would be the word for it. With Roger gone, Lennox sends back the 350 from Mexico, and Eileen is actually the messenger. Augustine knew that she was in it with Lennox, which is why he talked to her in the first place. He was much nicer, nicer about it with her than he was with Marlo. Marty no longer wants anything to do with Marlo. Eileen no longer requires Marlo's services. The whole case just kind of dries up, except Marlo sees Eileen leaving the meet with Marty to drop off the money. He gets hit by a car and spends a little while in the hospital, and then a little while getting to Mexico. But once he's there, he confirms that Lennox faked his death to hide out in Mexico, and when he finds him... Lennox info dumps all the connective tissue that no longer exists. That Eileen has hella money now since Roger is dead. That they can return the 350k because they have even more and that'll get Augustine off their backs. It's all super chill. Yeah, he killed his wife, but I mean, you're a born loser, Marlo. You know, that's the movie. Wrapped up in a really entitled little monologue from a completely unrepentant Terry Lennox. This accounting of it is the, the, the detective part of it, of which it, it feels that there is, again, precious little detecting. Yet this accounting of the movie, of the plot, of the details of the plot, is leaving so, so, so much out of what is in this film. And this is where I kind of talk about film as a medium being unique. 
It's not just a plot. There's more to it. <coughs> and yes, I'm, I'm sick again. But I'm leaving out the cat for one. The fucking cat. The cat has plagued every viewer of this movie. I, I, ah, God damn it. I don't even want to start on the cat. If I start on the cat, I'm going to, I'm going to be talking about the cat for like 15 minutes. Then talking about the dogs. If this makes no sense to you that you haven't seen this movie, I, I just, I can't explain it. I'm, I'm, you should watch it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about the cat or the dog. It's, it's too much. You may think this podcast has started, but listener, I tell you, I confide in you that it has not. Do I talk about the cast? Is, is that the hill that I die on? The music? I, I'm, I'm actually afraid to make a choice here. I'm afraid to start. All right. Okay. I'll start on the cat. The fucking cat. But no dogs. Marlo has a cat. How does this factor into the plot of the movie? Fucking not at all. Does it ever come up again? Often. So the movie opens up with the cat walk, uh, waking Marlo up. He looks like a bit of a mess sleeping in his suit pants and dress shirt. I think in this scene he's got that five o'clock shadow that is just super fucking rad that I don't, I don't get. Like, I have a big beard, yes, but it, it doesn't grow in like that. Anyway, he ran out of cat food. He tries to improvise food for the cat, and it's a non-starter. He goes to the 24-hour grocery store, and, and they don't have the food. This sets up an, uh, another quick scene, right? There's a tangential scene there, but we're on the cat. Focus on the cat. He buys another brand and tries to con the cat into eating it. The cat doesn't eat it and instead walks out through a makeshift cat door that says El Porto del Gato and is never seen again. Marlo spends the rest of the entire movie worried about and looking for the cat. But the cat is gone, baby. See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. Arrivederci. The cat was out there only for that Cory brand cat food. That's it. Doesn't take much for it to leave Marlo hanging. And the cat, ultimately, is Terry Lennox. Well, the cat lit isn't literally Terry Lennox, because Lennox was played by Yankees pitcher Jim Boughton. This isn't a baseball movie, so we won't go into his career, but suffice to say, he was decidedly not an actor, although he did end up writing a book and working on a TV show called Ball Four, which was about baseball. Anyway, it is both impressive that he was not an actor, and in instances, it is also obvious that he was not an actor. But this mode of working is wildly appropriate for this movie. If I recall correctly from an interview, uh, Elliot Gould played pickup basketball with Bowden, and uh, when the role was suddenly vacated, he just asked Bowden the next time he saw him and, and called up Robert Altman and said, hey, I got a guy. And Altman said, great, it's okay with me. But Lennox is the cat. Lennox wakes up Marlo, and, uh, and, and he has the ask. Marlo attempts to oblige, but in this one, he succeeds in one way and fails in the other. He succeeds in getting Lennox to Mexico, but he fails to drop the case. He disappoints the cat, but he spends the rest of the movie trying to get to the metaphorical cat back. The interesting point there is that he has come to an understanding with the cat, and it bounced, while he decidedly doesn't have an understanding with Lennox. The wanting is the same, but the having is very different. His last words to Lennox, after being called a, a born loser, was, Yeah, I even lost my cat. 
I think it was Altman or Gould who, in an interview, said, you can't fool a cat. And I'm sorry for the I don't remember and, and, and all that, but this is on a timetable here, and I need to, I need to release this in November, and I have been quite ill <laughs> during this, this month. But I, I think that while that statement is factually true, it is semantically misrepresenting this particular thesis. So in the interest of clarification, I posit that the line should be, you can't change a cat's mind, which when you factor out the cat can be written as, you can't change the nature of a thing or change it, drag your stripes, a leopard spots, the scorpion singing the fox, yada, yada. Marlowe is unfailingly loyal, spends the whole movie worried about the cat. Three people end up dead and he's like, my cat. It's, it's, it's one of the theses, theses, thesis pieces. It's one of the primary themes of the movie, but then that brings back to mind the Rip Van Marlowe comments, the man who went to sleep in 46 and woke up in 73. And, um, you know, just as an aside, if we want to take it the other way around, that we want to think that that Marlowe is the cat and that he cannot be fooled and that he does not fall for the cons and the switch up, that is a really much more straightforward Occam's razor interpretation. And and we can do that, but he uh he doesn't run away to Mexico per se. And he doesn't go outside to find the right cat food. It's just it's just the the conning and the fooling and the trickery that Mr. Marlowe uh, gets up to to try to satiate this uh, feline, domesticated feline. Does that mean that people in 1946 were, were more honest? Does it mean that they were more loyal, less fickle, less problematic, less alcoholic, less unhinged in murdery? Is this movie actually against woke culture of the 70s? In my eyes, kinda, in a way. In some ways, but there, there's something to that. Marlowe is the singular man out of time, and he's the most chill dude in the movie. He's rumpled. He smells like stale cigarettes, sweat, and a couple of gimlets. The other main characters in the movie are of a distinctly different makeup, tanned, health-conscious, or even health-obsessed. The striking contrast, or the, the exception there, is Sterling Hayden's character of Roger Wade, who is... Definitely outdoorsy and physical, but life-ruiningly alcoholic. Marlowe's the only one that keeps it real. Marty Augustine has a very specifically multicultural gang, and, and it's pointed out in the movie. But he's still a homicidal maniac and a career criminal. Marlowe is, is the incorruptible. But Marlowe's loyalty and perceived goodness, it, they really caused the entire movie to happen and the events to play out the way they do. You know, he, he by commission lets a killer go free, assists a killer in avoiding the police or whatever. Uh, accessory after the fact. Marlowe's representation of himself, which is, a, he thinks he's a stand-up guy, is kind of like the older generation saying, oh, we did this the right way and look at how uh, fake and phony this newer uh, woke generation is with their yoga and their pot. But then Marlowe, aside from being a legitimate criminal in actuality, even though not uh, being pursued by the state anymore, he then further becomes uh, more of a criminal and he murders someone and he's happy about it. And he does a dance and he plays a tiny harmonica. And there are these nude or at the very least topless, attractive young women who are his neighbors just doing yoga and pot all the time. 
And I don't know if that's a critique on the exploitation of women by also exploiting women or, or, or what, I'm not sure, but it is attention getting. Even the, the characters in the movie are like, whoa, holy shit, wow, wow, we, oh, fuck. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe that's the point. I can't be sure because I'm, I'm also a participant in the male gaze. So I'm wondering if there is just something here that I'm, I'm just completely missing. Maybe they are just there to represent the crystals crowd, the new age crowd, and having boobs in this movie would probably make dudes way more likely to be less disappointed in how fucking bamboozled they got by the actual movie. Marlo is super cool with them, though. He's basically sexless in this movie. Even with Eileen, he doesn't bone down. He starts asking business questions and he got a bunch, he's, he's got a bunch of hot neighbors who are always inviting him over to party. And he's just like the perfect gentleman about it. Like there is this chivalry to him, but maybe that's just identity armor, a facade put up for him to make others think that he is the good guy that he thinks he is. There's a lot of fakeness in this movie thematically. You know, I, I don't mean it's perpetrated by the movie, but it's, it is inserted into the movie. Roger Wade and Terry Lennox both had their names changed at one point. Marty Augustine may have as well, because he is uh, quite openly a Jewish gangster. And, and yes, it is an assumption on my part. But the name doesn't sound terribly Jewish, and he is completely consumed with appearances. This feels very Hollywood. I'm, I'm not pulling this out of nowhere either. The movie opens up with the... Just before the cat wakes Marlo up. And the movie ends with... As Marlo has become that which he hated the most. I get that legitimately none of this factors into the book or the plot much at all. But the movie, the film itself, is a huge, huge departure from the original text. And it's okay with me. It's a choice and it was made. But Marlowe's journey could be the journey of someone in Hollywood, the journey of turning into that which you hate. He thinks he has friends. He thinks he might have truth or maybe love. He has none of those. The closest he gets to a friend in this movie is the guard at the entrance to the Malibu colony who does impressions. And that's maybe the most Hollywood part of it. He's that, that, that guard is probably a, a comedian trying to get 20 minutes every night and doing the guard thing to make some ends. But then again, it's possible that he already gave up on being a comedian and just does the impressions to dissociate himself from the menial and monotonous metier to which he dedicates a significant amount of his waking hours. Or maybe he's just having a good time. Maybe it isn't all that, but it is Hollywood. Everybody's got a story. My Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead would be that guy's story. Marlowe isn't that. Marlowe never had aspirations. Or if he did, he separated himself thoroughly from them. He's carved out this Zen niche in Los Angeles's low-key iconic Hightower Court. He's in balance with his environment and neither asks the other for anything excessive until... Lennox shows up at his home that fateful evening, or until his cat wakes him up, however you want to slice it. To get any measure of justice back, he needs to shed all of that grace. And show business is a business that will chew you up and spit you out. 
you know, it, it, it really is interesting that the movie is bookended by Hooray for Hollywood because while there's actually a ton of music in this movie, there's actually only one other song in it. Yes, I know that sounds weird, but it is true. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, then you, you really need to go back and watch this movie. If you did watch it, then it's quite likely that you picked up on it a couple times, but the only other song in the movie is The Long Goodbye, and it's just rearranged for different styles by different musicians. A real kaleidoscope of arrangements for that one song. That's, that's very clever. That's a good joke. That is a, a meme shitpost for a soundtrack. <laughs> Imagine the soundtrack for this movie coming out with uh, track one being Hooray for Hollywood and then every other track being The Long Goodbye. John Williams, by the way, was on the ones and twos and responsible for carrying out this eccentric jest. Ultimately, I think it super works. I found it both bold and clever. It, this, this movie has jokes. This movie has jokes. I laughed out loud a couple times in this movie. The first one is when Marlowe is getting the mugshots done. You see him go through the process, but then you see the film strip come out and he's making a boosted face on the first frame. That got a, that got a full laugh out of me. Marlowe's got some one-liners, although he's not aggressively quippy. He's definitely an it's-okay-with-me type. There are some jokes that aren't funny haha, but are funny. Marty Augustine is written and portrayed by Mark Rydell is funny, but not in a ha-ha way. Not like a clown, not here to amuse you. But there's definitely improvisation in the movie attached to what is more obviously some set-up dialogue. The interrogation scene really puts this on display. Elliot Gould likes to talk about this one a bit because he had some, some really important improvisation here that that super duper worked Elliot Gould likes to talk in general and he seems like a perfectly delightful person so it's not it's not very trying to go around and listen to a few interviews with him I imported the Aero Blu-ray disc from the UK and there's a video interview of Elliot Gould by Michael Connolly the Chandler superfan and author of the Harry Bosch series of books which I've definitely talked about before that's a good time Anyway, in that scene, they've fingerprinted Martel's whole hand. And if you, now of a certain age, were ever a kid playing around in your parents' office, they definitely had stamps, like rubber stamps and an ink pad. Mine did, and I 100% got that stuff all over me. I loved playing with the ink and stamps. So he's got this ink all over his damn hand, and they stick him in the box. See that cool cop lingo? The box is the interrogation room white walls. He hits the far wall and there's a black handprint. We see this happen through the two-way mirror, which is all scratched up and shit. It's a very cool shot. A little window into this room. There is a lieutenant and the uniform cop that fingerprinted Marlowe in there while another guy is interrogating him. The audio from the interrogation room is, is a little muffled to lend to it that delicious, delicious realism. The guy interrogating him, the guy interrogating him is just throwing about a bunch of like gay slurs just out of nowhere. As this is happening, there's an exchange between the patrolman and the lieutenant, or the uniform of the lieutenant. Hey, Real cutie, by the way. Yeah, how do you spell? 
He's a smart ass, that's what he is. That's what I meant. Well, why don't you learn to say what you mean? He's a real smart ass, Lieutenant. It's clear that the uniform didn't speak up due to rank and status and race and all that. But he certainly had feelings once the lieutenant, who is not hip to the window, Here's your name, lieutenant, a real cutie pie. walks into the box and can't hear him. And it's not a coincidence that the uniform is black. He's the cutie pie, lieutenant. You're the smart ass, you little hunky bastard. He's later vindicated by the other guy in the box, but the lieutenant, he pays it no mind. It's subtle, but it's there. Additionally, while the uniform and the LT are having that exchange, Elliot Gould, as Marlowe, has decided to start putting the ink on his face. He paints his face like a football player, right, using eye black. It seems like somebody from the UK named it because they just named it exactly what it does in noun-verb format. Eye black, car park, post box, ball foot. You get the idea. It also turns out that eye black slightly increases contrast sensitivity based on two not great studies and an episode of Mythbusters. The more you know. Anyway, this cop is just calling him slurs and asking questions, and Marlowe is off in his own world, answering none of them but inhabiting an improv character, and is just he's just doing a scene. It's great, and yes, he does make mention of Al Jolson, who, when you search for him, you will absolutely find him in the most offensive blackface. So that's definitely Al Jolson's shtick. Marlowe isn't implying that it's good. He's just referencing that fact and making fun of the guy for performing in blackface. I'm pretty certain that this was something that everyone was trying to get past because, God, holy, holy shit is Al Jolson bad. But, I mean, that's, that's somewhat the point. The concept of race and class disparity were definitely in the movie, improvised or not. When Marlowe drives through the Malibu colony, which, you know, by the way, kind of looks like shit from the street and incredibly unimpressive, but, you know, I'm sure being actually on the beach, like on the water, basically, the homes were quite wonderful. No diss to Altman, whose home was used as the Wade house. But as Marlowe was first driving through the colony, he's focusing on the domestic staff who are all working and are all people of color. When he goes to park his car, not at Havid Yad, we see a troop of listless rich white women coming back from playing tennis. They don't even react to Marlowe parking. They don't even see him. The movie is kind of pointing out violent narcissists who are on the outside culturally sensitive, while also pointing out perfectly boring and trivial people who are not sensitive to anyone under their own status at all. It's got something for everyone. That's Hollywood. And it's okay with me. There are other themes and concepts to explore, for sure. I honestly don't have the time to to get into all of it right now, but realistically, this could be a huge chunk of a college-level course. I think that it could be, at least. So let's do a little housekeeping here. Yeah, you know, 30, 40 minutes in or whatever. Just you remember how I used to open up everything with by the numbers? Well, by the numbers, The Long Goodbye was released March 8th, 1973 on an estimated budget of $1.7 million with a worldwide gross of 21000 Yeah, that, that can't be right. But when the movie came out, it was in limited distribution. And oh boy, did it flop hard. It got re-released, but it's, it still didn't have legs. 
This was a big shakeup of the detective genre. Altman was quoted as saying, Chandler fans will hate me, and I don't give a damn. The studio pulled the movie and revamped the marketing from a detective picture to a mad magazine style spoof. It also is, is not that. You know, okay, its runtime is one hour and 52 minutes. Marlowe says, it's okay with me, 10 times, by my count. Be the nicest neighbor, I'm a private eye. It's okay with me. It's okay with me. You know, it's okay with me. You it's okay with me. 18, it's okay with me, lady. Oh, it's okay with me. I just, well, that's okay with me, but I'm not. It's okay with me. Ladies, it's okay with me. They're not even there. It's okay with me. But I want to get to back to the perception and to an extent the description of the movie. I've read and heard it called a send-up, a spoof, a satire. I, I genuinely don't think it's any of those things. Yes, I get jokes and I see that they're there. But like I've talked about in previous episodes, I see send-ups and spoofs in the same vein as the naked gun and loaded weapon and even satire like Thank You for Smoking, right? It's very purposeful. Greatly exaggerating the tropes versus the reality of the films. The Long Goodbye, it doesn't do that. And and here I'm just gonna gonna talk about how I felt watching this movie. I first saw this movie a few years ago. I didn't really remember much of it except for the intense ADR muttering that Elliot Gould needed to record after the fact to substitute in for the stereotypical private investigator's voiceover. I was against it at the time, very much so. I then saw it again last year. The buzz had picked up on the long goodbye for some reason, and it could have been the result of an anniversary or something, but the internet was, was very on top of it. I thought to myself, hey, maybe I fucked up. I watched it again. I thought to myself, I did not fuck up. This movie isn't great, but maybe there's something there. The interrogation scene really jumped out at me this time. Then I, I, I got into November here, this November, and I got into a different headspace. I've seen more movies than the ones that I've made episodes about. And I've uh, been swimming in detectives and murder and crime. And then looking through my list to see what would be appropriate to finalize November, I saw that I had the long goodbye. And I figured I'd give it another spin. And it hit different. It hit real different. I saw more from it. I saw more in it. A shocking amount, actually. But it took me seeing the movie at least three times before I was like, hey, I'm getting this. And I can, I can navigate this experience in a way that isn't just a knee-jerk reaction to the comparison of it and what has come both before and after. And you, you, you can't really just go by comparing it to what came before because it is wholly and very intentionally different. But you can probably make some headway by comparing it to what came afterwards. This movie genuinely feels like the early, early prototype, a grandparent of the Big Lebowski and other Coen Brothers movies. The sensibilities are there. The jokes uh, that are subtle, the ones that you notice, the ones that you don't, the ones that make you laugh, and the, the ones that make you think. Raymond Chandler had a career in both literature and film, but this is a, a significant departure from both. Yes, it is a, a walking simulator, basically. Yeah, Marlowe just kind of hangs out for most of the movie. He mutters a lot to himself. The ADR is off-putting. Yes, there were visual cues in his wardrobe that we can't see. Once the film was finished, as the exposed film was 
intentionally hit with some extra light to really wash it out. I can easily see someone thinking that this movie was awful because that person was me for years. It took a change of perspective to make it work for me. The movie didn't change at all. It's been picture locked since before I was born. I changed. I grew. I'm reminded of the woman who sat behind me in the mostly empty theater to watch Hail Caesar. The theater was really fucking empty and Hail Caesar is a Coen Brothers movie. So yes, there are jokes that make you laugh and jokes that make you don't, but are still funny. I laughed out loud several times. I'm a laugher. I like the laughter, the community of it. We're all the same if we're all laughing at something. Hopefully. I was the only one laughing. Once the lights came up, the woman behind me, who I didn't even bother to turn around to look at, to this day in my mind, she remains a disembodied voice incorporeal in her reaction to this film. She says, this was awful. They should show this movie to the terrorists in Guantanamo Bay. And I'm not making fun of her. I'm, this was in Florida, right? People talk like that here sometimes. I don't think I laughed at the time. That was definitely a joke. There was a, a Coen Brothers movie or an Altman movie happening to me right at that second. I was, I was one of the characters of the movie as well as being the audience. But that was the perfect punchline. That woman was, was saying something. I thought about it as I was leaving the theater. I laughed. And I've thought about it pretty often since then. This movie is like that. I initially watched it, and I didn't think about it at all. I watched it a second time, and I didn't think about it at all again. I noticed a really great scene, but I had the idea of the movie that I wanted in my head, and I wasn't getting it. I saw it the third time, looking for the punchline, and I think I found it. Or them, I found at least some of them. I think I'm on the right track here. The critical response to this movie has been all over the place. Audience response was pretty firmly negative for a long time. But it is it is so rich in its content. And it's there if you're digging, but as, as a casual watch, I wouldn't. I mean, I could now because I have I have the appropriate expectation. But I think a lot of people were expecting kind of the, the 70s version of Bad Boys 2. And, and shit got real for them. Some find this movie to be beautiful. I, I, I don't, per se, but the camera work is deft. It's the camera from the Maltese Falcon, but eating paleo and taking creatine after high-intensity interval training cycles. There are, there are hundreds of decisions made in every minute of this movie, and the camera plays a huge part in that. There are some flubs, some out-of-place ADR, and some readings that maybe weren't the best from the less experienced cast. It's not a perfect movie in a technical sense, but maybe it's a perfect movie in that I think it did achieve what it set out to achieve. It just didn't consult the movie-going public first. There are 101 more things that I would like to talk about, and some will probably make it into the show notes at scumbags.com, S-E-U-M-M-B-A-G-S, but I'm calling this one. I'm not coming back until sometime next year at the earliest, so this is indeed a long goodbye. Thanks for listening.